Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of the Bandwagon Podcast and today I've been joined by a very special guest, uh, somebody I tried to get on earlier and I have put my hands up and I will say sorry more formally. Um, she is an award-winning uh, dis- uh, disability specialist and the UK's most influential disabled person. Um, in 2020, she was named in the top 100 women uh, uh, BBC list and without further ado, welcome to Shani Dander. Hi. Hiya, how are you? Sorry, uh, I, di- I did say in the intro about the apology. I, I will disclose at this point, I w- we were supposed to do this a few weeks back, or probably a month or two back, and uh, I agreed to take a date time to get this done, and I completely forgot, and um, it was one of those, oh my God, I'm not, you know when you get one of those things where I'm supposed to be doing something today, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I feel like that all the time, by the way, and it's fine. Don't worry; it happens to all of us. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. You know what it is? I think I'm such a stickler for time that if you're on time, you're late, in my opinion. And I always been brought like my baby and my mom and dad, my mom especially, brought 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 me up to say time is time. You value it, you value it. So like, um, even at work, I was say to my team, I was like, we've got to be ahead of schedule, ahead of schedule. Um, and so when when I kind of actually violate my own rule, I feel <laughs> uh, you know I feel, I feel ashamed. I feel like an outcast. But it wasn't intentional. It's fine. Yeah. Don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah, yeah. How are you anyway? So how is the? Uh, I mean, it's been a bit. I'm, I'm, I mean, we're recording this only uh, the day before of what's happened with the Sidhu Musiala as well. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it's been it's been a quite emotional emotional thing. Has that had an impact on on yourself in terms of uh, this morning or yesterday? Yeah, I mean, it was a real shock, wasn't it? When I first saw the news on Instagram, I went to go and check some of the sources. Like, is this true? Uh, you know, oh, I was hoping it wasn't. Um, I have to admit, I'm not a big bungalow head. If you go onto my Spotify, you will not find any Bongo in my playlist. However, I really appreciate it. I love it at a wedding, you know. Um, and I, I think what's really sad is that when we are seeing people use their platform to create societal change, they're getting murdered for it. Mm. We know how corrupt some places are in the world. Um and it's shocking now. This is one of many, uh, you know, it's a long line of people. And it's it's really sad. But I was also reflecting on the legacy that he's created as well at such a young age, um, which is incredible. So. Yeah, I mean, I was at the, I mean, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm going to do a dedic. It, it would have already been out by then. But um, 
I, I, I was going to kind of, I was just planning on, I was just reflecting and processing. I was with my, I was at my son's um, friend's birthday party. You know, your community centre, you got a bouncy castle, you know, everyone's been dragged yeah. to one or something. And um, I had no reception and his friend's dad actually got a message on there. And I'm, I know it's significant, you know, when you have certain things that you remember where you were. And I was like, I remember yeah. where I was. And I thought, uh-oh. And then in the car, I was sitting there and then I didn't know what my surroundings were. And so my son heard that he, he's been killed, he's dead. And I was like, he's five. And I was like, all of a sudden there's this kind of, you know, I don't, I don't put on any of the Ukraine stuff. I don't put on any of the COVID stuff. He's been on TV. You're, you're really aware of, of your kind of surroundings. And, and he's five and the impact that he's kind of grown up with Sidhu, like in the background. Yeah. And you think, uh-oh. And so this is like their generation's Chumkila and or whatever, you know, what kind of cultural significance. Mm. And I think when you've got somebody who can transcend different kind of genres in different kind of even areas of work, I think it says a uh, it says a lot about that person in terms of kind of yeah. legacy. And I you think know what else I noticed? Um, so many parents saying because of Sibdo, their kids can speak Punjabi. Yeah. <sighs> you know, and well, my parents sent me to Punjabi school. They forced me to do GCSE in it. Of course, I hated it at the time. I hated spending my entire weekend learning Punjabi but as an adult I am so grateful for the fact that not only can I speak it but I can read and write Punjabi as mm. well mm. it's a skill that I will have forever mm. the fact that through music Siddha was able to do that in a generation that is so much more harder to reach I think is something incredible and when I was talking about legacy earlier it's way more than just his music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's still very raw, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think I think I think that's the word raw in it. So I mean, I don't really want to dwell on it too much. It's about you, really. So, um, but <laughs> in ter- in terms of um, you know, we ju- we were just talking about legacy, and then when I, I when I was doing my kind of research into yourself and and looking at the the work that you were doing, you know, you, you you've definitely created a, and have a kind of body of work or a, uh, a portfolio of work that you've kind of crossed areas like in, in tech um, or within your own line of business or your day-to-day as a as a champion, an inclusive kind of champion uh, as well, you know, on various kind of platforms. You know, how does a young shiny get into, um, a, uh, into that kind of arena? I have to start by saying... I never planned any of this. I never planned to do the work that I'm doing. I never planned to be an entrepreneur. I never planned to be an activist. It's all just happened very organically. So I was born with a really rare genetic condition. It's called brittle bone disease. Um, and I have a short stature as a result of it. So I'm three foot 10 in height. That's about the height of a four year old. Um, And so when I was born, it was a really tough time for my parents because I didn't actually get a diagnosis until I was two years old. So as soon as I was born, the doctors told my parents, there's something that's not quite right, but we're not sure what it is. Uh, Take her home. We'll figure it out and get back to you. And then um, my parents had to go to Great Ormond Street. And I just want to pause here and say, you know, for them to go to London on a train, 
go in a black cab. It was a really big deal back then for them. All they knew was West Brom. You know, my parents are literally in the same jobs that they did when I was born. That's how, that's what their world was. So even doing that, going to London to the hospital was a really, it was a really big thing. Um, but I'm really glad they did do that. That's where I got my uh, diagnosis. And even then, they didn't really get the answers that they were looking for because the condition's quite rare. It only affects one in 15,000 people in the UK. And, you know, my parents were asking questions, you know, will she ever be able to walk? Will she ever, ever be able to do X, Y, and Z? And the doctors were just sort of like, we don't know. We can tell you, you know, um, what life is typically like for people that live with this condition. But essentially, when you have brittle bone disease, it's like being made out of glass. So my bones break without any trauma. I don't have to have an accident. I don't have to have an injury. I don't have to fall over in order for my bones to break. So I could probably write a really brilliant book on all the ways I've broken. Um, but I'm also incredibly lucky. So I've only ever had six breaks in my life. But people with my condition and the type of brutal bonds that I have actually break between three to 400 times in their life. It's like coughing and then breaking a rib. That's how brittle some people are. Um, so my childhood was very um, unpredictable. I would just break. See, I, do, I wouldn't know when. Okay, so I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm, because I've broken, I've broken my yeah. um, ankle and I've broken my wrist, yeah. Yeah. And this might be the most stupidest question that I ever ask ever, but in terms of re the kind of break and the pain, is the pain any different because of the texture? I mean, you wouldn't have anything to compare about, but what I'm just saying is like the pain for somebody who's breaking it for like three, four hundred times. Mm. You know that I mean, it's excruciating to do that. When you do, were you feeling exactly the same kind of amount of pain as somebody who's clusters not having the disease? Um. So when I when I don't have any broken bones, I'm always in pain anyway. Right. Because I've got this condition, I've got many other conditions as well. So uh, if you ever asked me to tell you a day that I wasn't in pain, I can't. Like my earliest memory is just pain um but that's now like my baseline if that makes sense so and all my breaks have been major breaks I've always broken my legs so it wasn't like a finger here and a toe there it was always my legs so by the age of 14 I had broken my legs six times and I I knew when my legs would be broken let me tell you like what would happen so um <laughs> Once, okay, I was on a family holiday in Canada and a relative, you know how you pick a child up from under the arm? And they threw them under the No, you picked okay. me up to carry me and my leg broke. My leg wasn't hurting, no one touched my leg, but that that's how my bones used to break. And I mean, that... what did he say? What did he say? She was destroyed. She, oh, she, she was, she felt guilty and then, you know, Obviously, we were trying to say it's not your fault. It's just what happens. She doesn't live in this country. She lives in Canada. So it was probably very new to it all. But it was the last day of our holiday. 
and my mum was bless her she had to make a really tough decision um I'm one of three so I've got an older sister and a younger brother and it was a summer holiday I always used to break in the summer holidays it used to annoy me because like I couldn't miss that much school then, could I? No, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so my mum basically drugged me up, bandaged my leg up and flew me home because uh, because I, I can't get travel insurance to cover me, basically. Um, and if I'd stayed in Canada, we would have been there for six months. It would have meant my sister may not have been able to do her GCSEs. It would have meant my mum wouldn't have been able to work for six months. And I still don't know to this day how we did that. You know, you know, when I look back on this time in my life, I sometimes think, did that happen to me? (laughs) Did all these things happen to me? Um, So, yeah. uh, So I would know without needing an x-ray when my bone was broken. um, And... My mum never once called an ambulance, you know, even when we lived only around the corner from the hospital. Even when I was in pain, she'd be like, somebody needs that more than you. So she'd just pick me up, put me in the car and we'd go down to Amy. So the reason, like, I have the strength that I have today is massively because of my mum's influence. She never treated me any differently from my siblings. I got shifted. I was probably like the cheekiest child out of all of us. I think because I couldn't do physical alpha, I couldn't do, I couldn't, you yeah. know, do physical, I couldn't be mischievous physically. So it was all in my mouth. You over, you over, you overcompensate on being the cheeky probably. one. Yeah, probably. I'll get you. Yeah, but. Um, I have that same relationship with being fat. So I have Because <laughs> so, I can't. <laughs> I'm just doing it for that. So, but I'm. I'm just thinking, imagine like the, imagine if the blame claim culture was around for you, like, you know, someone picked you, you broke your leg or I put a claim in there, you'd be a bloody multi-millionaire just to start off. In America, but like, I knew um, there was like a a time where I would have got taken into care because Mm. especially without a diagnosis um, and I was getting all these injuries, my mum was asked, you know, are you abusing this child? And I know people with my condition that did wrongly get put into care the fact that I didn't you know I'm very grateful for but having a diagnosis is a privilege and that's not something that I really um really uh understood until I got COVID because when I present myself to medical professionals like I am a medical amazement to them because they will never have met anybody with my condition so that that maybe they will have read about it but quite often a lot of people don't know about it so uh, once I went to A&E and the consultant was amazed that I was there I was there with a broken leg and you know the whites the whites of your eye um, when you've got a white bronze they're usually blue and when I break they go blue and so he was calling every time Dick and Harry into the cubicle to look at my eyes. And I was lying there in pain. I was like, can you please give me some pain relief? But So, yeah, like even my GP doesn't really know what to do with me. So when I presented <laughs> with brittle bones and COVID, two very unknown conditions, people were like, what do we do with you now? So yeah. it wasn't until I had COVID did I really understand the privilege of a diagnosis. That's crazy, because then even with, 
I mean, we do live in a bit more kind of a labelistic uh, culture nowadays in society where some people either they get given a, a label, then they conform to that label. And but like, mm. I, I don't feel when you you live to that, you kind of you're creating you're kind of a trailblazer in your own in your own way because it's uncharted territory for a lot of these people, and then they they kind of picked out. It, just going, I mean, you touched on um, you know a little bit of your childhood, and then what, what are these some of the other barriers that you faced? Was there anything around? I mean, physically to get to school would have been even more scary as well. So I actually went to a special needs primary school because that's okay. what education was back thirty odd years ago. And it wasn't until I went to a mainstream secondary school did I myself realise that that wasn't the best place for my learning. I was amongst severely disabled children. I would feed them their crisps at lunch because people wouldn't be able to do that for themselves. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely loved it. I loved my time there, loved the school there, played loads. I remember the teachers telling me that I'd read all the books in the school. Um, And, yeah, it wasn't until I went to secondary school I was like oh I don't know anything I did I felt like I didn't know the basics and then on top of that because of how much recovery I would need after breaking I'd missed loads of school as well because it was it was during yeah primary secondary school I had the majority of my breaks and when when I broke it would be months on like traction pulling the bone back into place then I'd have to have physio, then I'd have to learn how to walk again, then I'd be able to go home. So I'm talking about a good six months of recovery mm-hmm. each time. Um, so I think I think it's sad, really. Like, I don't think inclusion in education has changed that much. It's better than what it was, but I was put in a system that I think helped me back. On one hand, yes, it it was the right place for my physical needs at the time but I didn't have anything special I used a wheelchair but there are so many other children that use wheelchairs that also go to a mainstream primary school as well um but I think it was to do with the age the condition not knowing so much about it so I'm not I'm not saying you know oh I'll hold everyone to account and everyone's about everyone was bad for choosing this decision for me it just is what it is um yeah so when I went to secondary school yeah I felt like I didn't know the basics I remember coming home and asking my mum for a tutor what child asks for a tutor and normally you get sent to tuition yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but I was really proud of uh, I left uh, school with 11 GCSEs but if I'm being truthfully honest, I was really infantilized, uh, even when I was, um, you know, a young person. So, you know, that that age between like 14 to 18 and then 18 to early 20s, my my family and the community would just treat me like a child. They didn't understand how to treat me as a young adult or as a young woman so it was a physical um, it was a physical stereotype rather the actual the the kind of mental kind of stereotype is that fair to say or not sort of because people also had massively low expectations for me in my life 
I'd remember. So if I wasn't at home and if I wasn't in hospital, we would be at the Godwara. These was and, and if I wasn't at school, those are the only four places that we went as a family. I all my family are Amritdari. That's the family that I've that's all I've ever known my entire life. Um so the Godwara and the community were a really big role in my life and always have been. And what I noticed was is the same expectations people had for other people my age, perhaps their children or other kids in the community, they didn't have that for me. I'm very capable of doing these things, but it's just like, oh, you don't have to do that, do you? Or you don't have to work, do you? You can just live on benefits. And I was like, I don't want to do that, do I? I want to contribute to society. Um, even like when I was learning how to drive, people were falling off their chair with amazement. And I think it's just because our perception of disability generally in society is quite negative and then it's even more negative in the South Asian community. If you ask me, the perception of disability is that either you're a benefit cheat or, or you want to be a Paralympian. That's all anyone ever thinks about disability because there's no other portrayal of it. Yeah, I, I mean, it was one of the, you just kind of answered the question, really. I was going to go and ask the, you know, the relationship between the faith, the the mm. representation and the and the community would have been, you know, one of where you've managed again in different arenas and different settings. Everything you're, you're saying is a day-to-day kind of achievement from what you said. Like, I mean, I'll recommend anyone who's watching or listening to this is to, Follow your Instagram account and you're seeing daily challenges all the all the time. Um, I remember breaking my I was talking about breaking my leg and I went to school and I had crutches. Mm. And when you're on crutches, you absolutely re- appreciate a handrail for one <laughs> and a, a lift and an escalator or anything like that. Um, you know, and getting into a bath, mm. getting into, you know, some of the most basic kind of day-to-day jobs and you and there was a sense of achievement but you're beating these things on a day-to-day basis from there how big of a challenge was it then when you were combating and had uh, combating some of those beliefs that were you were getting treated in that way were you firing back and saying um being like this because you know you, you you're very tenacious I mean would would they take it in the right way when you were trying to give them that positive <laughs> I kind of see the answer already. <laughs> so I'll let, I'll, let, I'll let you carry on. Yeah, I think it's fair to say I've I've had to be an educator and my own advocate from a really young age. You know, my dad was born in India. My mum was born here in Birmingham. Both, you know, from the same community, same religion, but both with very different views in life because of where they were born. So I had I had different approaches to parenting as well. Um, and I had to deal with a lot, not just uh, at home, but in the community. You know, I've had people say to me, oh, you must have done something bad in your past life. That's why you were born with this condition. And I know and I fully understand that that's what some people's view is of sickie and disability. Personally, I don't think it's that. And I'm really enjoying this new narrative of parents of disabled children that are saying, well, actually, I see it as God has given me this amazing servo to do. It's not that my child did something bad in their past life. 
And I think that's so powerful because at 16, people were saying this to me. I was like, well, am I supposed to feel guilty? Like, oh, what could I have done? And I'd sit there and be thinking about that. And that's not helpful. But um, I think coming back to the point where I had to educate people, like at the Godwara again, I'd be standing next to my mum and people would be asking my mum how I am when they full, fully well know I can respond for myself. So I'd be like, hi, Shani Tikia. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. How are you? And my mum would tell me off for being rude. But I'd say, no, mum, actually, they're being rude. They're ignoring the fact I'm standing right next to you. Um, so, yeah, I've always had to be an educator. And I would definitely say all of the perceptions and things people perhaps thought I couldn't achieve definitely fueled me and motivated me. But it wasn't it wasn't just that. It was the fact that I knew how fragile life is. The first 16 years of my life, I never had chance to think about what my adult life would look like. So when I left school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was so envious of all these people that knew what they wanted to be, knew what they wanted to study. I never got that chance. It was literally focusing on break after break after break, learning how to walk again. And I just thought, well, this will be my life for me. And it wasn't until I had some surgery uh, to have some metal rods in my legs did my legs stop breaking. Um, so then suddenly the world is my oyster. I'd stopped using a wheelchair at this age as well full time and I was like what what do I do now then uh so yeah that was the time where I faced other barriers societal barriers because up, up until that age I was in this safety net of education family um so that age it that I always talk about this this age between like 16 and my early 20s it was really hard and also going on at home where my family were expecting me to take my umrah to become a baptized Sikh. Mm. And I didn't want to do it. Mm. But for them, that was a really big deal. They couldn't understand why I didn't want to. They were like, this is all you've ever known. This is how we raised you. Your sister did it at 14. Why aren't you doing it now? So to my family, they saw that as an act of rebellion or as an act of me being bad or naughty, when it isn't, because whatever I choose to do in my life and whatever choices I make about religion is only down to me. Mm. But for them, uh, I think they found that really hard. Mm. So there was lots going on at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like, I mean, I'm trying to unpick different layers of that. There's yeah. ex family expectation, there's loyalty, there's your... Uh, somebody with a disability you're a woman of color all of these all these little um uh you know challenges to kind of overcome to have a cumulative effect of a bigger change in it um yeah. i just want to go back on something because there might be somebody who's listening to this or watching this who might have some similar going on or, or know of somebody around the world wherever in terms of kind of treatment wise you mentioned that having rods and stuff and that has treatment evolved over uh over over your lifetime in terms of that um and, and what are the the um what does uh, what does the future look like for them 
Yeah, thank you for doing that. No one's ever done that before. I think it's really important because I wouldn't be able to live the quality of life that I live now without that treatment, without the surgery, without the medical intervention, basically without the NHS. Mm. I'm super, super grateful for the NHS. um, And it's really sad to see what's happening with it at the moment. Um, So... There's no cure for the condition. It's a genetic condition. And although it doesn't run in my family, um, I'm what they call a spontaneous mutation. So there's just a chance of it happening to anybody anyway. Very, very, I think, I think, don't quote me, I think it's like a one in a million chance it could happen to anyone, I think. Um, so I had, um, yeah, I had rodding surgery in my legs. So because I only ever used to break my legs, and then when they used to heal, they'd be weaker and weaker each time. And eventually the bone was so bowed that it was just only ever going to keep breaking. Um, and then I also had some treatment to strengthen my bone density. So now my bone density is average to anybody else's. And this drug that I had, it actually derived from a pipe cleaner. And I know it sounds <laughs> terrible. But essentially, it helps the calcium stick to the bone because people with my condition have weak bones because there's holes in our bones, essentially. Mm. We don't have strong bones because of a collagen defect. Um, so, you know, when the COVID vaccine came out, I had no hesitation. I was like, I've had everything in me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I never questioned anything when I was growing up. The, the drug that I had, obviously, it was very new at the time. And I really, I, I asked my mum this. I was like, weren't you scared that it could have gone wrong? She's like, yeah, but we just took the chance. And I'm really glad she did because it really helped. Oh, and the best thing was is I used to grow one centimetre every three months when I was on this drug. And I didn't know that that was going to happen. But it was just like a, a nice <laughs> positive yeah. side effect. Yeah, I, I think, and you know something, it's, I'm, 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 I'm using kind of um, my, my experience and, and my children's experience as I'm living it now because we've got like a height chart, uh, you know, in the hallway. And, it's a big um, deal, isn't it? Growing it's massive, isn't it? It's, it? And it's massive. And my, my son, he's, he's not, um, there's other kids. And I was just talking about on Saturday where he's joined like the next level of uh, footballers. And, and so he's like five and he's playing like seven-year-olds. And then, you know, my own. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out of network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Like guilt coming in that was like, 
he's not the tall, the tallest within there. And you see other kids from it from that side. And then yeah. the discrimination language that I use on a dinner table, like I'll eat your food and then you'll grow or you have you have have your milk. And I'm like, is when you speak to somebody like yourself, is that self-education? I'm like shit, man. I'm not even using the right terminology. There's discrimination. <laughs> and like yeah. it's it's one of the worst things to do with this podcast is that you end up turning into this kind of super liberal woke, whatever. Are you very <laughs> you're very no, no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that you're scared to bloody say it. Like, no, to, I get what you, mean. you and, I think it just, I think that just reflects the world that we live in yeah. and all of the unheard voices that there are within mm. our community. I think that's what it is. And I think that's why we've got this narrative of, oh, it's woke, it's this, it's that. It's not. It's just actually we're choosing to, to not exclude certain people anymore. Yeah. And through the power of podcasts and social media, diverse people are using that platform to get out their messages and their their lived experience. And I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, I think it helps us to become better citizens of the world, to treat people more fairly. Mm. And I think if anyone thinks that that's a bad thing, then you're weird. No, no, I, no, I 100% agree with you. I think it's scared that you, I think it's kind of scary in terms of that you're not, um, I'll give you another example. This is a weird, this is a, not a weird one, but like, yeah, it's weird for me, but it, 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 it's pathetic for every, everyone else. But like yesterday I took my son to um, watch it. I do have a daughter and, and her name's Sean. So like when you say Shani, I'm like, oh, that's what I, so she was at a party and I, I took him to the to football and um, you know one of the players there, they've got twins and their daughters go are in his class. So they spotted each other and they, you know, like in a Melanie, they, they're running to each other, hugging each oh. other. And like, they were the granddad and I'm like talking to her. And I was like, oh my God, like that would never happen when I was, you know, with anyone at school. It'd always be like, oh, there's this smelly girls or whatever like this. And it's just... But you can see a new culture, a new atmosphere, a new sense of education, and and like a, a new, a new kind of unity. It feels like, especially with kids growing up. And I feel a little bit of an anomaly in our generation, where like at school all the upbringing used to hang around upbringing, and then and, and there used to be the white crews used to hang around the white crew. And like now, you see the di- how much diversity is there with people with their group of friends and stuff, and you can see they're really kind of enjoying it. And and I think. You know, stories like yourself and and I don't really want to call it a story, really. It's the achievements, what you've done, not just in this bit. We're only just focusing on one area, really, like your mm. physical disability. But your academia and the tech stuff, I just want to go a little bit into that. Then, mm. you know, you, 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 came out, you came out with strong education. Then you, you, you I was, when I was uh, researching you, you applied for over a hundred jobs because you thought you were being courteous by writing on the application that you ha- that you had a condition, and yeah. nobody got back to you until yeah. you took that out and put that put that in there. Um, yeah. How then do you think? Okay, the question is: If you did that now, would you still do that now? I think. Oh, that's a good question. I think now. Times have changed and the way in which you apply for jobs have changed. You've got to remember, I was applying for like entry level part time jobs. 
those kind of jobs, sometimes you apply for them informally, you go in and you drop your CV off. And of course, people get to see who you are and what you look like, right? Um, but that wasn't always the case either. So I'd love to sit here and say, yeah, it's different. But there are other disabled people that are more highly educated and more qualified than me that still have not had a chance of employment because of this stigma that exists. So, yeah, essentially, I, I, when I think back at this time now, I think it just goes to show how naive I was. Like, I didn't, I didn't realise there was so much stigma in the world against disabled people because essentially people were judging my ability either on my appearance or the fact that I, I live with a condition that's so sad when that is going to be the majority of us one day because 80 percent of all disabled people acquired their condition they were not born with it 80 mm. percent that means that disability is something that's going to affect all of us whether it's directly like you've already broken your bone so you know what it feels like um, to be temporarily disabled whether we get to reach old age whether it's a loved one so um, that's what actually gave me the mindset that I have today is that shit I can't get a job I wanted to work I had 11 GCSEs I got good grades as well um, you know, I had all the enthusiasm to want to work, but I just wasn't getting an opportunity. So I thought, right, I cannot spend the rest of my life waiting on other people to give me an opportunity. I have to create my own. I had already felt on the back foot with my education. And if I'm being honest, that, that's how I've always felt throughout my life. I've always had to overcompensate and that's why I, I felt like I had to go to university to have a degree to fall back on because I'm not academic as I said you know I really struggled at school I missed loads of school I, I, I didn't have the best opportunities to get the best education so going to uni you know I, I have a lot of older cousins so when I was younger yeah your crew's big man but <laughs> <laughs> well, you know I saw all my cousins going off to uni and it was like what everyone aspired to do back then and no one ever spoke to me about doing that and therefore I just never thought that would I'd ever be able to do it and you know what I thought only clever people went to uni until I got there and I realized it's yeah. just about handing you working on time <laughs> nothing yeah. about being clever so yeah that's where this all came from so I went to uni I did a degree in event management again I just chose something that I enjoyed and that was after going to college um and I chose that because I the person in my family I planned their holidays the parties the get-togethers and I thought oh that's fun I'll do that but what I didn't know is that I was choosing something that was so suited to my skill set because I live in a world that isn't designed for me I literally have to think about how I'm going to reach my kitchen cupboards, how I'm going to buy and wear clothes because I can't just wear them after off the rail. I have to plan every bit of my life. So being an event and project manager is about planning. It's about problem solving. It's about knowing what to do in a crisis. That's been my entire life. So I spent 10 years doing that. And then um, slowly I was becoming a budding disability activist. 
And it was because of this lack of representation that I was seeing in the conversation of inclusion and disability. Um, and I just thought, well, hang on, South Asian community is the second largest population. Why am I just seeing old white men make decisions on behalf of my community? They don't have any idea of what it's like to be a South Asian woman and, and live as a disabled person. And you know what also strikes me is that as South Asians, we are highly regarded for our contribution to, to, to modern British society, whether that's in politics, medicine or sport. We, we, we're, we're a well-educated community, but then why are we so behind on something like disability? Why is it still a taboo? So that's yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, to I mean, I'll throw it back to you. Why do you think it's still a taboo? I think it's a very layered answer. Definitely, religion has a role to do in it. Definitely, culture and these two things are very intrinsic to the to how we live our lives. Right, mm. culture and religion is central to who we are and what we do whether we believe in God or not. Um, Also generational views that get passed down. So as I said, my mum was born here, but sometimes with the things that she says, I sometimes think, why do you think that? And it's because that's what her parents taught her who were born in India. And then all these views get passed down. So we are the generation of of cycle breakers, aren't we? We're the ones that are challenging that, changing that, and hopefully have made it easier for the next generation to to continue doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, um, I think with any kind of stigma, those conversations that need to kind of happen is they formulate on like, honesty, trust and, 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 you know, the ingredients of a cake, I kind of put it down. But sometimes the topic areas that, you know, come in and when you're challenging, um, it's kind of, it's learned behavior. So I think we've got that duty in order to kind of have that education um, yeah. to making sure that you're passing down the correct information. So can people can make uh, informed choice, not just any choice, but an informed choice yeah. is, is huge. And we also have this huge concept of honor and shame in our community. Honor in terms of holding up a status or your family's mm-hmm. reputation and shame in, you know, what will people say? What will people think? And I don't know why, but always from a young age, I guess I've never cared about what other people think because I think if I ever did, I wouldn't leave my front door, you know? Like, people harass me in the street, that's the norm. People troll me online, that's the norm just because of who I am and how I look and because of all the things that make me who I am. So if I really cared about other people, I wouldn't have the confidence to do any of what I'm doing. So, you know, that that's how things like the Asian Women Festival come about, the Asian Disability Network, is because I've had a lifetime of fighting barriers, changing attitudes, and mixing that in with my events background it was a really natural thing to do because I would I was looking for these communities but they didn't exist so I just created these safe spaces and you know when I did the first Asian Mom Festival I thought I'll just do the first one and I'll see how it goes we're now a community of over 30,000 across 38 countries so 
it wasn't just me that was craving for that. It was many other people mm. too. So, so how, how did you, you know, the events, the events uh, management side of stuff and, and you go into the, was there, was there like a natural progression to get into the media or when, when did you notice that there was that, that, that gap? Not really. And um, I, I hated public speaking, if I'm being honest. If you watch my TED talk, you'll, you'll understand why. No, I wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah I hated it I hated it and as an event manager you would be the person that would have to open the event introduce the speaker thank the attendees for I hated it oh I hated it but I think it just goes to show that when you align your purpose with your passion and your work suddenly things that you hated you love and really enjoy or can enjoy mm. um so no actually it was when I just started sharing my experience more, um, so I got involved in a charity called Scope. They're a pan-disability charity in the UK. Uh, I've had a really long relationship with them and I'm now an ambassador for the charity. It was there where I really got to share the reality of being a South Asian woman who experiences disability. And you've, you've got to understand, like, I was in my late 20s at this point and no one had ever been interested in this narrative no one had ever been interested in this intersectional lens either of what my life was actually like. But I wasn't doing it to say, oh, my life is this, my life is that. I was doing it because I wanted to make change. So that's where it all started, really. Um, I That's where, like, this activism started through getting involved with Scope and they nurtured that in me very coincidentally I didn't go to them and say oh I want to be this and I want to go on tv nothing like that it's just like it just helped build my confidence in it it got me to understand like that people actually needed to hear what I was saying because nobody else was there was no other narrative of of somebody with my lived experience um so that's how that all started um and uh, as I said earlier I never planned any of this this has all come as a result of the work that I do so I'm, I'm a consultant I work with businesses and brands and I help them to become more inclusive but also because I am an activist and I speak on behalf of the community um so yeah that's how that all yeah and, and just from the, t- the the tech side I know you're in development of doing the doing the app did that what stage are we now in what iteration are we with that now so i'm launching a discount platform for disabled people because life costs a lot more when you live with a condition or an impairment and i actually had the idea when i was at uni myself um i had had a whole life of experiencing extra costs and feeling the guilt of my parents paying for my extra costs in order for me to go to secondary school, I needed an electric wheelchair that cost £7,000. £7,000 back then. And I sat there thinking that could have been the cost of like the next family car. I felt so guilty that my family had to, my parents who'd worked so hard and who are still in the same manual labour job that they were in back then, had to spend all that money just for me to go to school. Um, so... I thought, well, this isn't fair. Why do students get a discount when disabled people probably need it more? 
But back then, when I was at uni, no one was talking about disability. It wasn't trendy. We hadn't had the uh, the 2012 Paralympics because that helped to really shift perception in society. Mm. Um, so I waited a couple of years, and that's when I got going. And at the point where I got investment, then the pandemic hit, and I lost all my investors. Um, uh, so yeah, we're a couple of months off launch. It's another long story, probably a whole different episode about. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, when that launches, we'll get yeah. you. We'll get you back on, and uh, just to give it. Give it a yeah, good Yeah, but um, again, I'm not from a tech background. I can't even use a Mac, but I made a promise. I'm saying I can't as well. <laughs> right? I'm a Windows girl through and through, but I made a promise to myself, Ricky, that my worst fear is to be alive and not live. My worst fear is to live with regret. I know how fragile life is. Like, look at how the first 16 years of my life were. I'm very aware that these years that I have now are the years where I will have the most mobility, the most independence and the most freedom, which is why I travel so much, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I know as I get older, I will use a wheelchair again. I will have reduced mobility. And not that those are bad things, but I'm just very aware of the fact that life is going to be harder because the world is inaccessible. It's not because I live with this condition. It's because of the way the world is set up. So, yeah, I'm just doing me. Well, that's, I mean, like, if anybody needs any kind of motivation, just listen to the last minute of that. I'm definitely going to clip that. So I'm giving you that. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> I'll just, and, and, you know, you, you've been a very consistent voice, you know, when you, when you've talked about us and you've, appeared on some of the kind of like loose women you've been on this morning um did I hear or miss did, did you get into some acting at all as well I did I love EastEnders and I got to be an EastEnders <laughs> so you went to the now I'll be honest I haven't watched yes. it for a long time it's okay. amazing and there's even a Sikh family in there now you've got to watch it yeah the I saw when that the I mean they were the last time when I saw when it that when the, is he a gangster? Because I think the the first yeah. time when I saw when he when uh, when they announced that they were coming, I said, "Oh yeah, that's good." I gave it a retweet, and then the yeah. typical thing, and you know, just retweet it. Yeah, well done. And then I didn't pay any attention. So, are you <laughs> are you part of that family then? I wish I was. Oh. I wish I want to be Keelan's girlfriend in there, right? But no, I'm not. I was an estate agent. It was just a guest role. Okay. Um, yeah, and look, I'm not an actress. I just had the opportunity to audition for it and I went for it purely because I just wanted to go to Albert Square. I didn't think I'd get it. I got it. Um, so, yeah, that's... Was that's it like, a, what was it like? Do you, did they write... How did you know that opportunity was there to act, like that, that role was coming up? Uh, so my, I've got an agent and they sent it to me. They knew I looked I look at it. you got an agent. Look at that. <laughs> look how far you've gone. You've gone from, you know, being at the Gordara... <laughs> and, you, and your mum was the agent there speaking on your behalf and now you've got a proper agent speaking on your behalf a female <laughs> yeah but you know what I'll never forget who I am and where I'm from big yeah. up West Brom yeah no no that I look I am look all credit to you if I, if I could get an agent that'd be brilliant so um when you go when, so you go there and then they pick you and then then what, what was Albert Square like then oh it was amazing it was it's just amazing just to see how it all comes together and how talented the people are. Like, 
they don't have long to learn the lines and do what they need to do. And the first time they rehearse is the scene before it will get recorded. So, yeah, it was a really big learning curve. But I much prefer just seeing who I am and saying what I want to say. It's very hard um, acting. So what did you tell him? What were you, what, uh, what oh, were you telling him? My storyline, it was part of a really, it was part of a really, my scene was part of a really big storyline. I was selling somebody's house from underneath them. Um, so yeah, it was, you have to watch are you, are you knew And you knew you were doing that? So like, what I'm saying, were you innocent or you a villain? It sounds like you were a bit of a villain. No. I wasn't a villain, I was just a sassy estate agent. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I, because I watch it, like, religiously, you know what I love? Like, you know, when I've been on holiday, I love coming home, making the jar, and just binge-watching the whole week of EastEnders episode. To me, that is pure bliss. I still think my mum and dad record it. See, you know that on Coronation Street? There was that oh. once, yeah, it's hilarious. Oh, fair. <laughs> I mean, that's And then you went on Loose Women as well? Yeah, so I'm a guest panellist on are you reg- Are you a regular on there now? So I'm a guest panellist, so I'm not, um, uh, like, a, re- a regular, but yeah. I, I guess, go when they call me. I want to be a regular. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really great, and it's just like having a chat with your mates. Mm. Um, and they're really nice and super interested in my opinion and what I've got to say and I think that's the I think that's the key thing because even when you know when I follow, follow you on, on Instagram and when you actually say something it's always a different perspective I think that's really rare now because we can kind of you can see people just conforming to the same kind of narrative and uh, yeah. around it and I think you you are a very unique voice in a in a, in a just a unique set of circumstances as well so Having a different angle will be kind of you know is the be- is, is really valuable. Yeah. What's you the know what, what, you, no, know what, um, you know when I first started out doing this, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I'm representing disabled people. I'm representing Asian women, but actually, it it transcends all of that, and it's from the comments that I get. Old white men like they're like, wow, you know, you're so amazing, or what you said made so much sense to me I would never have understood this perspective before so I I take up space thinking I'm doing it for this community and this group of people but it it goes beyond that and I think that's the power in diversity and including different people in everything that we do I'm just gonna. I want to ask you a couple of final questions that we're getting there. So, like, in your next six months, are we gonna see you in a film? What are we gonna? Is there oh. a book coming out? Is there like a Shani on tour kind of thing? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> um, there's a there's a few um things that I've contributed that are coming out soon. Is that um, the thing that you came? Okay, so just to be aware, you were on holiday. Was it in Vegas or something? Yeah. And then you cut it short for something else that you're working on. Are you allowed to say what that is yet? Yes, that's happened. So uh, I was invited to speak at Google for the third year in a row. Google, you know. So they must really like what I have to say. But yeah, um, so my friends are still on holiday. I've got proper FOMO. Um, are they sending so, you yeah, back in the WhatsApp group and it's sending you yeah. pictures up? Yeah. The same holiday, I would have been there. But look, um, it was an amazing opportunity. When Google rings, you go. You don't say no to Google. 
And what are they are they doing particular kind of projects or are they just trying to highlight causes or it was um it was for their flagship advertising event of the year. So all of their clients that they work with the world's biggest brands. So I was there to talk about um inclusive marketing um and, and help people on that journey. Um but yeah, I love Google as a client, they're, they're amazing and their stuff's brilliant. So yeah. So that's one that's one exciting part of the, the work that I do is I you know get to work with amazing brands and I get to I get to work with the people that shape our society. You know, it's great going on TV, it's great being invited to glamorous events, but the core of my work is working with people that influence our society. And for me, that's why I started a business because it's not governments or charities that influence society, it's business. It's why the app that I'm launching isn't a charity because it has to be a business. That Otherwise, we wouldn't have influencers who make tons of money, right? I'm actually, you actually just re, some, you, what you just said there is actually kind of um, reinvigorated my belief. I went to a podcast show, man, like there's a, there's a world event, like the YouTuber there, everything. Mm. I looked around, there was nobody like me. There was no, there was very few people of colour that there in, in total. And I went to go and speak to one of the execs there and I was like, oh, how you doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, you know, what's your plans for, like, inclusive, inclusion of diversity and stuff? And he, he started, he goes, yeah, we've always got a plan. You know, we're happy to work with anyone. Uh, our core audience is America. So, like, automatically assuming that we're, the podcast is bilingual, it's, it's, yeah. just not, it's just not for them. And I just thought, oh, man, I feel like being starting at zero again. But, like, yeah. when you hear stories like what you've just been invited in, you know, that is kind of reassuring and, and you know, moving in the right direction. And what I would say, there are so many um, companies out there yet that still do not understand that by being diverse and inclusive, it means that your productivity is going to be better and it means that your profitability is going to be better. So don't don't waste your time with those organisations because there are other organisations that get it and that know that not only is this right, the right thing to do morally, but it also benefits us commercially as well. So I am really seeing that shift now. Yes, it's tough. Yes, it makes my work very repetitive. Yes, it's frustrating. And yes, it is emotionally exhausting. Um, but change is happening. So um, yeah. don't, don't give up. And no. just look for those companies that are putting their money where their mouth is okay last bit now so and um i'm not i'm not sure that you you've had you know in your showbiz life not to not to, to, to listen to any of the episodes but i give an opportunity to the, to the guests at this point and to say that uh the show is called the bandwagon so um is there a bandwagon that you like to jump on is there a bandwagon that you like to jump off or generally, is there anything that you want to just get off your, ch- off your chest? So this is your opportunity to, to kind of uh, share those feelings. Oh. Yeah, something that I want to get off my chest is, so lots of people ask me, well, what can we do to make the world more inclusive? Or what can we do to remove barriers for disabled people? And while I truly believe that, yes we have a voice in that 
the onus is always on us to remove the barriers that we didn't put into place. And it's really annoying because despite doing all the work that I'm doing, I've got other dreams and ambitions. But at this moment in time, I never think, I don't think I'll ever get around to doing that because there's still so much work to do in this space. And with the person who I am, I can't walk away from it either. I'm like, no, you need to do this and this and this. So what I want to say is don't expect an oppressed group or a marginalised community to remove the barriers that they didn't put in place. Everyone has a responsibility, whether you are aware of it or not, whether you work in a corporate space or not, whether you... I don't know, it could be anywhere. It could be in your friend circle, your family circle, the Godora, the corner shop, football team. In every walk of life, everyone has a responsibility. And it's just about helping people to live life, live life independently, confidently, and without barriers. And I think that's a basic need that we should all have the right to, to enjoy. So that's what I want to get off my chest. No, thank you, man. It's, it's you know, when you, when you, Sometimes I give opportunity to some people and they'll they'll say kind of the same kind of thing and you understand it. But like for you to actually kind of think about that and come to a, a more calculated response, you know, I really appreciate that. And I think we'll touch base again once when the app when the app launches and I'll uh, we'll we'll give it a plug and to do everything. But um, I just want to say thank you for taking the time out and uh, joining me on on the episode. Really appreciate it and uh, just just to say that we'll support everything that you'll do. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really glad we got to make this happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, see you later. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.